Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Rick Wilson, the CEO of Miva, which is a leading comprehensive e-commerce platform. With over 25 years of executive-level experience, Rick has a unique vantage point on the business shift to e-commerce, asserting that business society is still very early in the transition to e-commerce, with only about 18% of retail transactions currently conducted online. With comprehensive solutions for all facets of online selling, Miva delivers a modern omni-channel e-commerce for every customer in every industry. It has processed more than $100 billion in orders. We hope you enjoy the show. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. Maybe what we could do for the benefit of our audience is hear a little bit of background on yourself, and then we'll start chatting about Miva. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Rick Wilson. I'm CEO of Miva. I've been in and around Miva and the world of e-commerce since 1999. Started out there as a sales guy during the original dot-com boom, aging myself a little bit here. And we helped sell it in 2004. The people we sold it to screwed it up. And then myself and some people bought it back in 2007 and rebuilt it. 14 years later, here I am still running the company. I didn't really expect that when we did it, but uh, it's been a great journey. That's interesting. The company took some twists and turns, and I've seen that before, so we'll, we'll get into that. But I guess to, to start off, e-commerce, when we think of e-commerce today, most folks will immediately draw on Amazon as the behemoth that's doing everything. But what may not come to light for these people is that there are a lot of brands and smaller companies out there that are using e-commerce platforms such as yourselves and have their own functionality and they're not reliant on Amazon. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that balance between selling on Amazon, not selling on Amazon, and some people exclusively not selling on Amazon? Yeah, absolutely. So in the United States, Amazon represents about 50% of online sales. And so from a balance perspective, I generally recommend, and this does vary by business and things like margin and what they're selling, but as a real broad stroke rule of thumb, if you're selling only on Amazon, then you're probably missing out on a lot of sales and more importantly, a lot of profit margin. And if you're selling not on Amazon and assuming you can afford to, you're missing out on a lot of sales, right? So since Amazon is 50% of the market here in North America or in the US, then I recommend a US-based seller should have about 50% of their product moving through Amazon. Now, that comes with a fair number of asterisks, right? So if Amazon's going to ship and fulfill for you, which is how you get the buy box, and they're taking their product listing fee and all that stuff, Amazon's going to take half the money off the top. And so you need to make sure you have enough margin in your product to be able to sell on Amazon successfully. Addition... Amazon has rules. There's some ways around this stuff, but Amazon has rules that suggest you can't sell it for less elsewhere. And you know, enforcing that, those are different podcasts for different days, but business owners should be building their brand first and foremost and not Amazon's brand. But if it's properly structured, they should be selling about half of their stuff on Amazon. It's really interesting. I also talked to an old friend of mine uh, about a couple months back, and what he had done is he set up a whole company that would help nascent products sell on Amazon and they kind of like ramp it up. They know they have like this formula, this playbook for, you know, ensuring, I guess they get the reviews in place. They know how to like script everything, all the marketing messaging. And then private equity has gotten into it too, where they bought up portfolios 
of these businesses. That's kind of one of those new trends in private equity e-commerce that it's adjacent to us. So I don't have a ton of insight into it. I'm probably reading this. You, you probably know more because you're talking to people, but this is, you know, I'm reading about it on TechCrunch and elsewhere in the press. And I'm a little fascinated by that because as a private equity backed company ourselves, and we were bootstrapped for a long time, right? So we've been through, at 22 years old, we've kind of been a little bit of everything in different phases, but, but we're currently a private equity backed company. And most private equity companies like to control their destiny, which I understand. If I was controlling the purse strings, I would too. And Amazon is not a world where, where you really control your destiny if you're the brand, if you're only on Amazon. But there is this rush of private equity money right now into building these Amazon first brands. And it's fascinating to watch. It seems like you're kind of, and surprisingly, investors have got comfortable with this where you're beholden to Amazon. Yep. Like you have to obey by their rules, whatever fees they want to place on you. So is it possible to become very effective operating as a standalone? I mean, we talked about the 50-50, but with a kind of platform at your back, such as Miva, could someone be extremely successful if they had their own right playbook, kind of marketing, getting the word out about their brand? And again, with your platform behind them, could they be extremely successful in ramp sales quickly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we see we see it all the time. And I mean, whether it's Miva or some of the other big players in our space, you know, not that I want to talk about my competitors, but whether it's Shopify, Big Commerce, Adobe Magento, or Miva, just between the four of us, you know, you're talking probably 150 billion a year in online sales just amongst us as platforms, right? And and so yeah, there's a lot of GMV running through the independent stores. What the difference is. If you come to a platform like us, or the ones I just mentioned, there's no traffic generation, right? So where Amazon's brilliance, so to speak, you know, everything Jeff Bezos imagined, you know, it's weird, this is the first time I'm talking about them since he's not CEO, but every time, everything he imagined was a flywheel, right? So, so he started creating the world's biggest online, started bookseller, then ultimately marketplace, and then you get the crowd, so you have the people there, so people want to go, right? So he now he has the eyeballs, and he did a world where he essentially, for 50% on average of the dollar in, he'll give you the eyeballs, the payment processing, and the shipping. Well, in traditional retail, 50% is the margin, right? So he's basically having people finance his inventory for him, which is brilliant. Now they're the largest online retail in the world. He's the wealthiest man in the world. So it's a brilliant move. But the flip is true. If you have a brand, if someone cares about your product, you don't want to give that 50% to anyone else unless you have to, right? So not counting marketing costs, not counting getting the eyeballs to your site, the cost for credit card processing and shipping all in is going to be 10 or 11%, right? So is paying for that person to come buy from you worth the other 39 or 40%? And if you don't have a brand, if no one knows who you are, of course, right? How else, you know, as long as you have enough margin. But if I'm Nike, so to speak, and people are, are not out shopping for just any old tennis shoe, but they want a Nike, then of course I should keep that money myself. And, and that's true, not just for well-known brands. They're great for an example, but that's true for every entrepreneur. You think about something I was going to show you, and I don't know if we'll show this video or not, but you know, think about PopSocket, those things you put on the back of your phone, right? That have the little things you can hold your hand with your phone. PopSockets are great. They're not a household name. They're a well-known brand, reasonably speaking, for a little phone tchotchke. But People want pop sockets. And so why should pop socket give its 50% to Amazon unless it has to? And that's really where that thinking comes in. But with that said, your playbook has to involve traffic generation. 
Now let's switch gears a little bit to kind of the micro and how you got started. So in the in the early days, and uh, it may have been in yeah, I think you said it was the late nineties. Yep. How did you first? I guess what was your first role with the company? And, and let's talk about how that that evolved. Sure. So I was uh, of all things. This is how funny how the world works. I was the neighbor of the founders of Miva. I still live most of the time here in San Diego, but I was living in San Diego down by the beach. And uh, two of my nearby neighbors were the founders of Miva. I was uh, in my 20s. I was a salesperson. I had helped another company turn itself around and get some success. I was not in tech at the time, but I was very tech-minded. And uh, when they went and got their first round of financing in the spring of 1999, they reached out to me to recruit me. And so they brought me in. The world was real different back then. Back then, in order to launch your own e-commerce site, you know, Back then, Amazon pretty much only sold books. They might, they were probably selling DVDs at that point, right? But books, CDs, DVDs. And the way you got an e-commerce site, let's say you were the first person to have, you know, control the market for office supplies. So you suddenly had a bunch of pens and you want to sell them. You had to be pretty technical. So you'd go find an e-commerce platform. You'd go find web hosting. You'd go find credit card processing. You'd piece all this stuff together. And that's where Miva initially played. And I was out selling to these web hosting companies. So today, your average listener, a web hosting company, the most famous ones that are still somewhat independent would be like a GoDaddy or maybe a HostGator or a Bluehost. But most people these days host on things like AWS, Amazon Web Services, or, or Microsoft Azure. But back then, it was really those thousands upon thousands of these tiny little hosting companies. So we would go sell to hosting companies, and we would sell hosting companies our software that they would host and sell it to their customers, right? So if you were going to say go to GoDaddy and wanted to start an online store, GoDaddy may present you with a copy of our, our platform. Fast forward to later years and the model doesn't work that way anymore. People expect to go sign up online for a service and just have it all work. Yeah. It's interesting. You came in from the sales angle and we've we've seen that before. And recently I've had a lot of conversations about how sales isn't something that's taught very frequently in, in school, in business school, whether it's undergrad or, or in MBA programs. What do you think are kind of the, how are you effective in sales? It's a great question. There's a few different types of salespeople, right? And so, well, there's probably, just like everything, there's lots of colors in that rainbow. But I was always a product-focused sales guy. And I was a solution-selling salesperson. And so, so I'm really, I think I'm good at not wasting time and figuring out if the thing I'm doing is going to meet your need, right? So you're a podcaster. If I was selling a podcast platform, have a quick chat with you. You know, Obviously, you got to find a way to get in front of you and then have a good chat with you. But real quickly, like, hey, is this a pain point you're having? And if the answer is yes, then discuss if we can solve it. If it's not, great to meet you and, and move on with our lives. And so I was always, I think I've always been really good at matching product fit with need or pain, right? Because there are great salespeople. There's the quote unquote, you can sell ice to an Eskimo idea. But the fact of the matter is, I don't really subscribe to that kind of selling. You should be matching need with thing as opposed to like convincing someone who doesn't need ice to buy ice. And so, and I've seen both kinds, you know, you'll meet those people who are, there's the stereo, the Hollywood stereotype of a real slick salesperson. My actual experience in life is that every once in a while, you'll find one of those in a blue moon, but really great salespeople are good listeners, which is ironic because most people don't think that, but they're really good listeners. They understand what you're experiencing and then they're going to help you solve it or not waste your time. And then from that position, you were able to orchestrate or help orchestrate a repositioning of the company. And 
I guess, a buyout of sorts. Did you have experience doing this before? Or, no, um, no, it was it was a, you know how you look back at something you do when you're younger and you're like, well, I can't believe I was stupid enough to pull that off. <laughs> this is definitely one of those experiences. I had no money. I had a friend with money. In my mind at the time, he had sort of what was unlimited money, but in practice, we got lucky and pushed it to the edge. But no, I had no experience. All I had was I knew Miva and I was probably, I was arguably the best person on the planet to take this asset and do something with it. It was such a unique asset in a dynamic market that I just happened to have a unique perspective on what playbook to run with it. And going back to what we talked about playbooks already, playbooks are critical, right? And so sometimes you invent them as you're going and sometimes you have one to follow, but this was one we invented as we went along. And then you continued to scale the business and I think uh, maybe a few years ago you had another investor come in? Yeah, so when we bought the thing in late 2007, it was tiny. It was five employees and about half a million in top line revenue. And we bootstrapped it. When you bootstrap it, if you're a listener, that means we were doing all of our growth came from our own capital, right? So we we were profitable enough to reinvest in the company. And uh, we went from five employees and about 500,000 in top line revenue to, I think, as time goes on, you forget the specific points, but I think we were at about 80 employees and about 10 million in revenue when we took our private equity backing in 2017. And the point of that was for the investor partner who was also my business partner who I had brought in for him to retire. He's still involved, he's still on the board, still an advisor to me. But he really was like, hey, I've, I've had my run here, I need to step back. So he largely, he sold about half of his stake in the company to the new investor, and now we have a private equity backed, they're still the minority shareholder, but we have a private equity backer who I work with closely to run the business. And now with a new kind of capital partner, are you able to ramp, I guess, more quickly what's well, kind of been the increment of additional scale you've been able to tack on? So I think that probably varies from a listener perspective. I think that varies from deal to deal, right? right. Um, we've always been an efficiency-focused company, right? So sure, after this, we had more capital than we've ever had before, but still, unlike, say, you see these companies that go raise 100, 200 million bucks and feels like they have unlimited capital. We've never really lived in that world. But the company, you know, we've, we've effectively doubled the size of it in a little over four years. And so, yeah. and what it allowed us to accomplish was there's a number of things that when you're bootstrapping, you know, when you're bootstrapping, let's say you want to go hire a new VP of marketing, right? And you're doing it out of your EBITDA then you're trying to make these equations in your head like, well, if I do this, how quickly will they generate more revenue to help pay for themselves? You know, the the paybacks have to be pretty short to make investments. And in some ways, you can make smart investments that way, but it can be really constraining. And so what we did with the growth capital here, we're back to being profitable, so not really digging into growth capital, but what we did with the growth capital on that round was we really flushed out sales and marketing. So I think we have I want to say we have 27 or 28 people in sales and marketing today. When we did that round four years ago, we had five. And so that was a huge focus of of the money and and not just throwing bodies at it, although the bodies are critical, you can't do it without them, but hiring people who had done it before, who had expertise, you know, who done stuff like launch Salesforce, use HubSpot, do what we would call best practices in sales and marketing, and have the cover, you know, the nice thing about having an equity backer is you have the cover to make some bets and not all bets have to work. With the team now, the, the fleshed out sales and marketing team, presumably at the same time, you're able to evolve the product. And is there enough of a market, meaning are there new companies that are you're able to sell to are there ones that are just have never used a system like yours before? Or are you taking 
stealing customers away from other competitors? So in our world, I guess technically the second one, in our world, it looks like this. So we do, one of the things that we do somewhat uniquely is we do hybrid B2B, B2C e-commerce. And so for a listener, what that means is you think of, I'm going to go to Amazon, I'm the consumer, they're the business, that's the B2C, and I'm going to go buy a t-shirt and that t-shirt shows up and the transaction's done. Where let's say you manufacture coffee makers and you need to go buy parts in bulk. And so now you're the business buying for another business that's B2B. And e-commerce and B2B, ironically, there's way more dollars in B2B, as you can th- if you think about it, is logical, but there's less margin. And e-commerce and B2B is still a little bit young relative to consumers, right? There, I don't think there's anyone new going to learn to shop online this year that didn't already know how to shop online, right? So it's not that people have never used a platform like this. What we see is, especially on the B2B side, people who have either a really crappy experience, maybe something they wrote themselves or something their accounting system included, but not a full-featured kind of consumer-grade platform. And then there's always people migrating from competitors. I mean, the thing about, I think one way to think about things like e-commerce platforms is they're a little bit like office space or retail space, right? You can't just buy retail space once and let it sit forever. You know, every so often you have to remodel it and refresh it. And whenever someone's doing that, both visually and behind the scenes, then companies like us have a chance to step in and, and take that business. Now, as I am uh, eyeing the clock here, we're, we're uh, approaching uh, the finish time, but I'd like to ask a couple questions at the end of uh, these interviews. One is, can you tell us about a challenging time you face? Uh, it sounds like you've probably had a bit of a roller coaster. So can you tell us a bit, about a challenging time you face and how you're able to kind of get through to the other side. And it's kind of a time where you look back and I think you alluded to one before. I'm not sure if it's going to be the same answer, but you look back and you say like, wow, I can't believe we were able to actually pull that off. Yeah, I mean, probably there is a number of those. We could do a whole series of podcasts just on that conversation. And I think, you know, for those listening who are entrepreneurs, that may be the most critical takeaway. And you hear this, and this is nothing new for me. You hear this from anyone who teaches about business. You know, the path is not straight. The path is curvy and unpredictable. Perseverance. Now, you got to be perseverance with some intelligence and some luck and a few other things, but perseverance is probably the single most critical attribute. But for us, I would say that when we switched from being a distributed software platform that we sold to an intermediary, and then they sold it to someone else, and we didn't have any recurring revenue. When we switched and cut them out and went direct to the business or the merchant, that was probably the most harrowing thing. And it started with making a decision to initially charge our existing customers then a monthly fee. And the company was tiny. We didn't have a lot of resources. And in hindsight, gosh, it wasn't a big deal. But at the time, we didn't know if the business was going to evaporate on us. So suddenly, hey, I know you weren't paying for this monthly before, but next month you got to start paying. And we didn't know if everyone was going to tell us off or not. And so that, you know, that was in 2009. And had that not worked, we wouldn't be having this. If we were talking today, it wouldn't be about Miva, right? That was a bet the company moment. And I think the way to your, the other half of your question is how did we get through it? Well, it started with, it was like a matrix. So you looked at what do we need to survive? Like how much money do we have to generate for this company to function, right? And that's kind of standard ROI, right? Like I'm going to spend a dollar and I have to make $2 back or this isn't worth anyone's time. And then the other thing was an honest question of is the thing we're providing worth that $2, right? The theoretical $2. And what we saw was our customers were generating millions, if not billions total, not any one customer, combined through our platform, charging them a nominal monthly fee 
if they left us over that, then we didn't want to be in this market anymore anyways. So, so we really looked at it as a value proposition. We believed wholeheartedly in our value proposition and that we were providing an exceptional service for a fair cost. And, you know, and there was a, there was a lot more nuance to it that I won't bore you with today, but that was probably talk about sleepless nights. That was probably the phase of the most sleepless nights. There's been a few of those, but that was the hardest one. And then that business model was fairly simple. It was a flat fee per month in the like $10 a month range. We had a lot more users back then, smaller ones. And at some point, as we realized we were working with bigger and bigger companies, we needed to shift our model to being usage-based, you know, how much sales they were running through the platform. So about six years ago, six years ago, about right now, we switched from a flat rate pricing model to a pricing model based on how much you sell through the platform. It wasn't quite as scary as the first one, but it was pretty close. And uh, I like to claim that that's where most of my gray hair came from. But it's been nice not to have to do that again. (laughs) Okay, last question is, is there someone that you think of as as a role model as you've gone through some tough times and, and you tried to make tough decisions? Is there someone who you've kind of thought of in the back of your head is like, how would this person frame this problem? How would this person kind of make the decision and, and incorporate kind of all the inputs to make a good one? Is there someone that, that you kind of keep up there at, at the top of your mind? So I'm going to give you two answers. One, no one's going to know about, and that was my business partner. But but the reason I mentioned that is uh, his name is Russ Carroll. He's still on the board of directors here at Miva, and he's still an advisor to me. But it's not about me or Russ, really. It's I think entrepreneurship is, I think if you can find the right pair buddy, the right pair partner in this stuff, and you have the right understanding of how the business is going to work, having a second set of eyes who's on the same path is much better. You can solve bigger problems. You can do more unique things. Probably the strangest thing about being a CEO of a company that someone may not realize if they've never sat in this this seat is how weirdly lonely it is, right? Because there's no one else to ask. You are the arbiter. And so having a partner in that process is really critical. From a more theoretical one that you were, I think you were really asking, we always would use Steve Jobs. I mean, I know he's, he's cliche, but we looked at what he did when he retook over Apple in the 90s when he sold Next back to Apple. And at the time, Apple was flailing. I mean, it's so hard to think of this $2.5 trillion company. It was almost out of business 25 years ago. But they were flailing. They had all these different disparate product lines. You couldn't tell who they served. And Steve Jobs came in and he notoriously wrote, drew a cross or a foursquare on a whiteboard and said, this is who we serve. We serve consumers and professionals and students. And he had four products. We have an iMac, an eMac, a MacBook Pro. Oh, it was mobile and desktop consumer pro. We have four products. That's it. And he got rid of everything else, the Newton, everything, all this other stuff, their printer lines. And some of that stuff was popular stuff, but he made the hard decision to focus. And if you study him, if you read his biography, he was a big proponent of the most important thing a leader can say is no. And what he meant by that is having focus, having the discipline to not jump into everything on earth. And so that, you know, in, in times of what on earth would we do, that was who I usually go back to mentally. Well, that's a good note to end on. A couple um, good people that I think most people can draw on is, is their business partners, as, as well as kind of folks uh, who've really excelled in their industry. So, Rick, thank you so much for, again, for taking the time. I know our audience will uh, find this very insightful. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 